0: is it like the end of all these uh, this uh, period um, coming together and the uh, annual celebration of Lung po Cha on his uh, death day, funeral day next year it'll be 20 years since he died, died in 1992 and uh Will be 2012, and it's predicted by the Mayan calendar that the world's going to end before. No, it'll be the it'll be after the god, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> you don't. I don't think you're taking this seriously. <laughs> Uh, Ajahn Chah was always saying the world ended here he pointing to his citta and say so we want to see the end of the world and the world ends here so that's, that's something worth contemplating what does he mean by that and, and then contemplate what is it what do you mean by the world you know, I found this uh, you know this kind of challenging as we we think we know the, the the word you know we think we know what it means and and of course, too, in my background, the world always meant a physical world. You know, the end of the world meant like Armageddon, where Earth, everything disappears into a void or whatever. But uh, in Dhamma practice, you know, you're you're not looking on that scale on the macrocosmic view. You're looking from the microcosm of the world that that we create. You know, who's the creator of the world? Did God create the world? And then, uh, then these are like rhetorical questions, ways of asking yourself, you know, to investigate, to, to find out how to use the, you know, not just see things in such kind of, uh, standard, physical, culturally prejudiced ways, but by, what is, what is the world? And then in Buddhism that's uh, the illusions we create in our mind. So, you know, each one of us lives in our own world. We all think we live in the same world, but when you really get to know others, listen to them, and, and when you're like a Jawa Wat, the Wat Banana Chant, like Ajahn Kimberley, you, you, you know, you think you're all on the same uh, plane, but you're not. Each one is living in his own world. <laughs> so, and that's why it's so frustrating, because you think, what, what's wrong? What's the matter? Why can't they... and then, eventually, by contemplating this, you realize it's the way things are, you know. And we, we have to see, experience life from this point, you know, that's a human birth and, and so you're, you're kind of incarcerated in the human form for a lifetime. And then it's conditioned when you're born, you know, by your mother, father, society and all the rest. So you get your you know, your messages through your family through especially at first is your mother and father, your brothers, sisters, relatives and cultural mm-hmm. conditioning, social identities and all the rest come after you're born, you aren't born with a personality or you're not born with the, as anything other than the, a human form that's conscious. And then the conditioning starts after you're born. So like in the first three fetters, the sanyojanas, you know, the first three are the creations out of ignorance, the cultural conditioning, the, The self-view and the thinking process, even the language we have—you know—that we learn from our parents, from our our culture—is conditioned out of ignorance. It's not—it's not to be uh, just taken for granted and operate from just the the way one thinks with one's uh, native tongue. And so, like this mindfulness. Uh, wisdom practice of the Buddha is it gets you to have perspective on just the conditions that you've acquired you know from both you know from education from uh, cultural identities and uh, and your own identity with your what you look like and and the ego the sense of your individuality and self that that is uh, developed after you're born. So this is the world, you know. And mm-hmm. the way I wonder why we have problems with getting on with others. Is because we, when we're trying to compare one person with another, we're we we usually using ourselves as the kind of precedent, and then they don't quite fit into the world that I conceive, of. <laughs> and uh and then uh, you know misunderstandings, problems arise. So in this practice, mindfulness. Then this this is a way. This is the only way, the only possible way one can can get out of the trap of samsara, through the conditioned realm. It's the only possible way when you see it yourself. They don't believe me, but let's investigate the. You know, because no matter how refined your conditioning might be, it's still a Nietzsche kanata. Not to mention, the, you know, from the coarse level to the very subtle or refined levels, uh, these are conditioned. That, so they're, they have only a span. They are born and die. So then the mindfulness is the is that way that a human individual has to have perspective on birth and death. And so they are called the deathless. Uh, I named the monastery in England, Amarabhati, deathless realm, because, uh, and this was in the, we went there in 1984. And at that time, in Europe, there was a a kind of very, kind of, uh, written, probably in Germany too against these cruise missiles and and it's almost taken for granted that this war was inevitable and so but there was talk of, in, of nothing at the time in the society in the Britain that I lived in at that time it was like it's all about we're going to die anyway what's the point the third world war all about death and that whole concept of the deathless was not consciously felt, you know, in the society. It was all about death. And so I intentionally named uh, this monastery in Hertfordshire Amaravati Deathless Realm, just to be able to use the term you know, to to at least uh, stimulate some kind of questioning rather than this fatalistic negative attitude that was that uh, you know was so commonly felt and then of course the Soviet Union imploded and the Berlin Wall suddenly disappeared you know I remember when they when the well, first heard news of the Berlin Wall being demolished you know because a week before that a week before the they started tearing down the Berlin Wall. I was talking to one of the German monks in England, and so I asked him, I said, do you think they'll ever tear down that wall? And he said, not in our lifetime, never. <laughs> and he was considerably younger than I. <laughs> and so, so, uh, and then the week later, they're tearing it down. <laughs> so, so that was it. And then the Soviet Union imploded, you know, this kind of monolithic menace that in America, you know, you're, you're conditioned to see the Soviet Union as this kind of invincible, ongoing disease that's taking over the planet, like a crawling fungus that you just have to keep at bay as best you can, and then suddenly it implodes. It didn't, wasn't just... You know, a war and, and, and a revolution even, it just kind of failed. And uh, that was something no one expected at all. So, and, but this is, uh, talking like this is a way of showing how world events, you know, why we we want to have the security of being, uh, tell the future and know what's going to happen in the future. But Ajahn Chah was always, it's my naf practice is uncertainty because right now you're sitting here, at this moment you're sitting in this sala, vatnanachat, and the future, right now, what is the future is, could be anything, you know, anything you imagine might happen in the future. And and this you can know, you know, the, the, what you don't know is in the future. And then the past is what you remember, you know, I remember yesterday and so for the the meeting at Wat Bap Home. And that's the past. But there's only this here and now moment. And this is where Sati Sapatanya is. It's it's our it's our escape hatch from birth and death. So this is like this escape hatch is just being able to be fully present in the moment. And not through, through controlling or manipulating your mind, but through releasing any controls and kind of opening uh, widely to the present. And, but also being aware of it. You know, so it's not the kind of seeing only from the position of knowing rather than mm-hmm. from your own personal feeling of the moment or your cultural attitude about it or your personal opinion. So this, this kind of reflection is, uh, you know, see, way out of suffering. And to put it back in the context of four noble truths is is mindfulness <clears throat> that allows us to get perspective on the on the on the worlds we create, on the illusions that we have about ourselves and the world and other people. There's no other way we can do it. You know, trying to control the world from our world always leads to disaster. You <laughs> know, as we, you know, if you read history, you can see, you know, the history of disasters of people, you know, trying to control everybody uh, through, usually through tyrannical or oppressive means or whatnot to try to make them all march and step or fit into a context of somebody's ideal some phil- philosophical, religious or or political ideal and of course in in our lifetime we've seen that the failure of uh, com- Soviet communism you know it was an ideal uh... based on you know very high minded perceptions of equality and fairness and where there's no rich and no poor and and it's all the very best and the, the ideal was was very beautiful but the means used to promote the ideal was a tyrannical one so you have can you get a communist perfect communist society through tyranny and of course look what happened and then uh, society, the world, we're never going to live in the same world you know, monks I've known all these years you know, the, we're not we don't just you have the same thoughts, same tendencies, same uh, you know, attitudes about things, we don't still have these differences but we the aim is to see the world rather than Live, believe in our own separate world, and operate from our own particular personal agendas or views or attitudes or reactions. So you can see the profundity of this teaching, and but it is a practical teaching. It's not just being philosophical or abstract about it. uh, you know when the Buddha pointed to suffering as the first noble truth, he pointed at something quite ordinary you know, it 's not subtle or abstruse or you know, refined it 's just ordinary feeling of disease or unhappiness or doubt or worries is that so when you have the noble truth based on such an ordinary common human experience that 's significant that you that's the kind of key, the clue, to the escape from suffering. And that whole sequence of the noble truth then follows accordingly, gives you the directions, information you need. But it, the bhatibhatta, the practice is internalizing that, you know, making it work for you, because nobody can do it for you. Not even an enlightened Buddha can could make his disciples enlightened. So, but he could uh, give these expedient teachings uh, to give that direction in which enlightenment or seen clearly. And, and then, the, then the worlds, the different worlds are no longer <coughs> here in this tradition. We, we all agree, uh, you know, in terms of a structure of living together, have the Vinaya. So that gives us structure and agreement about behavior and etiquette which we all agree to so we're all from different backgrounds different, we all live in our own worlds, but we agree to live in this, with this structure and that way you know, we aren't endlessly kind of uh, you know, forcing our opinions and our views onto each other we you know, we, we're not trying to use power and force and fear and tyranny to, in our lives. But we, you know, to become a bhikkhu, you have to agree to live within the boundaries of the Vinaya. Learn that so that it, you know, becomes like something that is quite natural for you. When you're first ordained, Vinaya can be, seem very clumsy and And and, uh, problematic because you know when you start anything, learning to play the guitar or or learn to play a sport or a dance step or something, you you know you have to start out from being quite clumsy and until you develop the skill. So this is like a training. Uh, to not to be grasping but to not to just be institutionalize you and make you conform but <clears throat> to give you an expedient lifestyle that we can get perspective on what's really important it's here the mind itself observing the the feelings the thoughts the emotions that one has in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of right, wrong, good or bad and personal identities so leave you with this and uh, you know I found uh, you know this this way it does take persistence because you know there's so many distractions and, and one goes through various phases of love and hate with the tradition and doubts and faith and so forth so you know it isn't that I totally committed to Thai Forest tradition right from the start and never questioned it but you know I did have enough faith in it to to use it and learn how to use it and then to to uh, see my own personal world and um, emotional habits in regards to limitation on action and speech and and uh, structures conventional structures and being a buddhist monk you know well i lived 34 years in the uk so it's, there you're kind of on the fringe of society here you're you know you everybody goes like this <laughs> going to that no, my Papa, a thousand people going like this to to us, <laughs> and when you go to Europe, you don't get that kind of treat. <laughs> but, uh, but the practice is still the same, whether you're here in Thailand or in England. Is that it's uh, you know it's you, you keep your attention here. You don't, you're not looking for you know to try to make problems around the society you're in, but to use the, the society you're in to observe your own emotional reactions, love, hate, like, dislike, and, and how the self manifests in, in, this, in this life. You know, your own feeling, your own sense of your individuality, is not to suppress or deny, but to recognize. So this satipanya is a way of recognizing the way things are not just not about trying to make things the way you want or to make things fit an ideal that you have, but to to be able to trust this rec- ability to recognize Dhamma, know Dhamma in a direct way, not through conceiving it but recognizing it and trusting it. So I offer this as a reflection.